once every 12 years, tens of millions of Hindus gather at the Ganges River in Ahalabad, India, for what's known as the Kumbha Mela. I don't know if I'm pronouncing any of that correctly, but that's what I was reading. In 2001, they estimated that 60 million people attended. I don't know anything about this. Maybe you do. I don't know how 60 million people get together, and it's not big news. But uh, from the website, kumbamahala.net, here's how they describe it. Today, in 2013, from January 27th to February 25th, the banks of the Sangam will once again be in an uproar as millions, devout and commoners alike, will make the place their temporary homes. And the site of sadhus, the guardians of the faith, naga babas, different types of people, covering their bodies with ash, and mayhants, lured to come out of their hideouts in forests, mountains, and caves, charging towards the Sangam, to take a holy dip in the waters at the appointed time will once again make for the visual dazzle. It's believed that bathing here will free one from all the past sins, thereby liberating him from the cycle of life and death. Discomfort of having to travel miles and living in open air under freezing water will take a back seat and it's the pure sense of devotion and spirituality that will prevail, evident through their faces. So I don't know if you caught the date on that. January 27th, today, starts this month-long festival. So today, with the time change in India, people are now, right now, uh, bathing in a heavily polluted river, believing that by doing so, they will be cleansed of their sins and moved towards nirvana. The river offers purity, wealth, fertility, and cleansing of the soul. So you can probably get your airline ticket. Still book your trip to participate if you feel like that's a good way to have your sins dealt with. I think I'm going to pass despite the fact that 50 million people are participating. They're making this a pilgrimage, feeling like this is a key part of their spiritual lives. And while covering my body in ash and wading into freezing dirty water sounds like a blast, uh, for rituals that have to do with forgiving sin, I'll take the Lord's Supper today. But before we do that, let's delve into the scriptures, into the story of the God-man who brings healing, who makes forgiveness of sin and liberation from death possible. This week's passage begins for the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus' public ministry takes off. Jesus begins to preach, teach, heal, and call disciples. So there's a lot happening in today's passage. We'll be answering the who, the where, the what of Jesus' early ministry, the questions 
about how he started. But before we get too far in the text, uh, I'd like to open your Bible. Uh, You can pull out your sermon insert too if you want. Matthew 4. Last week we had uh, Kevin Haas bring us words outside of Matthew, but going back two weeks, remember what Dr. Dave preached on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And I don't know how you are about writing in your Bible. For a long time, I thought that was a little sacrilegious growing up, and, and then for a while, I just wanted to have like the perfect notes. And so I remember in seminary thinking, if I heard something that if I was preaching through a text that I did not want to miss, I would write it in there. And so I have a note in my Bible between verses 11 and verses 12. So in between Dave's last sermon and my sermon this morning, it says John 1 through 4. Glad I wrote that because I wouldn't have remembered. And I went back and I looked at if you get a harmony of the Gospels. Most of them would say that most of John chapters 1 through 4 fit in right here. And it happens actually in Mark and Luke as well and all the synoptics because John is really adding to what he knows the other three writers have already put down. So where it sounds like if we're just reading through Matthew that Jesus goes immediately from the wilderness to our text today and kind of big public ministry, we're actually missing a whole lot. Possibly we've missed a whole year of Jesus' ministry, as John records it, if you kind of follow the the Passover celebrations mentioned. So what do we miss in Matthew that John covers? Well, you're going to be real familiar with a lot of this. The wedding, where Jesus turned water into wine. The first cleansing of the temple. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, visiting Jesus at night in, in the very famous... Jesus' teaching on God so loved the world and you must be born again. As well as the encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. So all of that has been sort of this first year of ministry. And we are actually picking up into the second year of Jesus' ministry. And so when we read that Jesus' fame has spread, we're going to get to that at the end of chapter 4, it feels very much overnight success. Because Matthew's just left out a lot for whatever reason. But it's not been overnight. Jesus has been working. He's been at this. And so, but as Matthew writes it now, we begin with an explanation. He's going to set the scene. He's going to give us the context, the setting, the geographic location. So let's look at verses 12 through 16. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So the passage starts with Jesus hearing about John being arrested. But we really don't get an explanation of that, of John's arrest until Matthew 14. 
where it says kind of in retrospect that John has angered Herod because he criticized Herod for marrying his brother's wife. So we find now that, that Jesus is moving to a different place. So let's get our bearings up here with a, with a little map. I hope you can see this. Again, there are seats down here. So, first century Israel. What we're used to, we've got Bethlehem, where Jesus was born. Jerusalem, sort of the center of everything. This is the area called Judea. And what the passage this morning says is, Jesus is working his way, now he's up in here, in Galilee. Alright, he's gone, going from Nazareth to Capernaum. And they're not labeled on the map that that's the uh, Zebulun and Naphtali. And then just if you don't know much at all about the Holy Land, there's the Sea of Galilee. It says the Lake Galilee up there. And the Jordan River comes all the way down and empties into the Dead Sea. I went 24 years ago, I guess it's been. Been that long? Yeah, okay. So, great trip. You can make it. Thanks. So just to get our bearings, uh, there we are. Jesus is actually moving up into the northern kingdom, northern part of Israel. So why is this significant? Why why we start with this? Um, Ligon Duncan is a PCA pastor and professor. Read one of his sermons. Really helped me get a grasp on why this was significant. Few ideas. Uh, you noticed how far away we are now from Jerusalem, from sort of the center of Jewish faith. And because Jesus knows eventually he will be heading to Jerusalem. His father's plan is that he come to Jerusalem for conflict, ultimately betrayal, arrest, and eventually crucifixion. But that time is not yet. And Jesus says several times, my time has not yet come. And so he's actually ministering in a very different area, getting out of, away from the lights. The, the possible, not as much conflict up there. Galilee seemed a lot more open to the world, uh, to new ideas than Judea. Very different area. Very mixed area. He knows... That's where he'll recruit his first disciples, as we're going to see. But it's also a pretty strategic place to get to a lot of different areas in the northern part of the kingdom. There was a common saying at the time, Judea is on the way to nowhere. Galilee is on the way to everywhere. So Jesus starts there. bases his ministry for a while. But ultimately, the most important reason is that, as we've seen throughout our study of Matthew so far, and we will keep seeing that Jesus' life is not being guided by random chance. Right? God's plan is unfolding. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy simply by being where God moves him. Jesus' life is divinely guided. And Matthew is recognizing that for us. Now, there's a lot going on in that Isaiah prophecy that we read, uh, verses 11, uh, uh, sorry, 15 and 16. Uh, the original context of that, there's a, there's a lot going on. That those two lands had been attacked and suffered much around the time of Elijah and afterwards. And the original 
context, I think, it was a little bit about coming back from the exile and having light shine on that land again. But Matthew says, the ultimate fulfillment of this is the true light coming to these lands. And that same chapter, Isaiah chapter 9, goes into further on the whole section that we hear every Christmas. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That whole passage, that section. And Matthew reminds us that that's Jesus fulfilling that. And so rather than it being a mistake that Jesus is in Galilee of the Gentiles, which some, many people probably would have criticized. Why, why are you going away from Jerusalem? Why are you up in Galilee or the Gentiles? Matthew reminds the reader that it is actually further proof of his divinity. So now that Matthew's explained the setting, he next shows us how Jesus is assembling a ministry team to work with him. So we go from where to who. All right, verses 17 through 22. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee and their their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. So here we are introduced to Simon Peter, the rock, the bold, the man who puts his foot in his mouth continually. Andrew, his brother, the inquisitive. James and John, the sons of thunder. We don't get a whole lot about them, but we're introduced and we're going to see a lot more from them throughout Matthew. Again, Matthew's account is a little short. We know from John chapter 1 that Andrew was actually one of John the Baptist's disciples. And that both he and Peter had already met Jesus. Probably months before this account that we have. And the Gospel of Luke has a much fuller story as well. You remember, that story is, I think, the same one that we're looking at here, just with much fuller details. And that's the one where Simon is coming in with his boat, worn out from a night of fishing, not having caught anything. Jesus gets on board, says, throw your nets one more time. And Simon kind of balks and says, we haven't caught anything. He does it. Of course, has the huge haul of fish. And Luke records that when Simon, James, and John got off the boat, they followed Jesus. So some people point to these as conflicting accounts. I don't see it that way. I see these as the same story, just Matthew doesn't give us all the details. 
There's so much good stuff in this whole passage, uh, not all of which we'll be able to get to this morning. But one of the most encouraging things, and you've, you've probably heard it plenty of times in sermons and talks about Jesus' ministry, if you've been in the church long, is that he called such ordinary people as his apostles. The tradition of the time was that a student would go and find a rabbi that he wanted to study under and go and ask to be his disciple. But Jesus does not wait for the right students to come to him. And he doesn't go to the centers of learning to find the best and the brightest Old Testament scholars. And he doesn't, as far as we know, ask for recommendations for the men with the best resumes and character. No, he goes and he finds working men and taps them for service. If we were framing this theologically, we might say that he has chosen them, even that he has unconditionally elected them. But at the very least, it is a great illustration of what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That's encouraging for me. Now Jesus called to them, follow me. Did you know that occurs 75 times in the Gospels? Whereas the phrase born again, how many times do you think that's used? Once. One time. And yet, I feel like often as evangelicals, we make the main emphasis of our relationship with Jesus is we've got to be born again. And I'm not saying that's invalid. That's certainly a, a good way to describe it. But I wonder sometime if there is a connection to the fact that more than half of the teenagers who grow up in our churches leave the church after the age of 18. Maybe they thought born again was enough and they never really got to the part about follow me. Of course, those are not contradictory in any way. But you can stop well short and just say, oh yeah, I made that decision. Go on with your life. Jesus calls us to follow. And we never know where that call will take us, do we? Tom Wright, a commentator, gave me sort of this idea that James, there's no way for him to know that within a few years he would be dead, killed on the orders of Herod. Peter would be crucified upside down. And yet, did Peter know that he would end up with a huge church dedicated to his memory? Or Andrew, did he know that whole countries, Scotland, Greece, Russia, would regard him as their patron saint? Did John know that he would write five books of the Old Testament, die in an old age, exiled in Patmos? Of course, they didn't. 
They neither saw the glory nor the pain. They only saw him. And that was enough. He called and they answered. And his call was to be fishers of men. I wonder if their occupation had been something else. They would have been architects of the soul or businessmen in the kingdom. I don't know. But he knows that they know the fishing trade. And he says, I'm calling you out of that. But you've got some skills that can work here. And it's interesting, God has actually used this terminology before. I didn't know this. Jeremiah 16, 16 is speaking of Israel in Exodus. In the exile, sorry. If you want to turn to Jeremiah, you can. It says like this. Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them. Again, we're talking about Israel. From every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. So you ask, well, why is he sending hunters and fishers after Israel? Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Uh, There's some good in that he's bringing them out of exile, but catch verse 18. First, I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because they have polluted my land with the carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. So this phrase, fishers of men, may not have had the best connotation. They were fishing in order for God's judgment to come. And yet how wonderful that Jesus reverses this idea and will be using men as fishers of other men to save them from God's judgment. Now, oops. I barely know how to use this thing. I do know that it connects two parts. I realize the disciples probably use nets, but this is going to have to work for our illustration. I have a pretty short history with fishing. I think I've only caught about five fish in my life, but they're pretty exciting. Everybody's got their story. Uh, Eight years old, I think I first caught my first fish, about that big. Cat, catfish at Ligonier Camp. A lot of you guys have been to. You may have your stories about fishing. Jesus' call to his disciples was to be fishers of men. And he was calling them to what we refer today as vocational pastors. Right? So it would be very easy to limit this passage to just be talking about God's special call to clergy, to missionaries, to parachurch ministers, others who pursue ministry. I mean, maybe it would have made a great sermon last week with Jeff's ordination. I mean, we are talking about four of the apostles. These guys were called out of their work and into Jesus' full-time ministry. They're going to become the pillars of the church. But I think since the rest of the New Testament so heavily emphasizes the priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter, 
the fact that we are all ambassadors of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. The fact that we're all called to be salt and light in this world, Matthew 5. Many, many passages. I think we can safely say that we're all called to be fishers of men in some way. And so God may not be calling you out of your work as he did the disciples. But he's calling you to radically follow him and to fish wherever you are. You can fish for men. Here's, here's a few ways. Some of these I've heard of people in our congregation doing. Others, just possibilities, thoughts. You're going to have to figure out your own context for these things. We sometimes call these intentional, relational evangelism. Fishing for men happens when we love the people we work with and we take an interest in their lives. When we invite our neighbors over to watch football or reality TV or play games, whatever, whatever they're into. When we strike up conversations with people that we sit next to on buses and planes and we're getting our oil changed in our car. I've heard of somebody in our church goes to the same checkout lane every time she goes to the grocery store so that she gets to know the cashier a little better every time. We can coach our kids' sports teams, not just with an eye on winning or developing our kids' skill, but getting to know other families in the community. It's fishing. We invite those kids' sports teams over for dinner. Anytime we use our house, it's hospitality. We can volunteer at schools, tutor. We can take a meal to a neighbor family who's had a baby, is dealing with family illness or death. We can host Bible studies in our homes, invite our neighbors, and even invite people to church. Anywhere your life touches theirs, where you can meet a need, Find out where God has gifted you. Some of you are great with hospitality. Some of you are great with sports. Whatever, where God's put you. You're fishing for men. Not in a manipulative way where they're targets. You're just trying to get them in. But genuinely where you love people. Not just so that they'll go to church, but that they will see God's love through you. Now, you probably know our church doesn't do much marketing, advertising. Uh, we have a website. We've got signs coming soon. And, and we have in the past. We, we do a few things. But generally, it's not enough. Some people don't like that we don't advertise enough. But our philosophy really is that you are the marketing strategy. You are our advertisement. You are the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. You are the fishers that are going to bring the fish in. And ultimately, we have, we have a really nice progression in this passage that can lay out our Christian lives for us. If you just look at what Jesus says, what he commands, the verbs he used. Listen to this. Repent, follow, 
fish. I like that. I kind of noticed that. We've got to get that order correct in our lives. Repent. Kingdom is near. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. We have to start our Christian lives repenting of our sins, recognizing that our sins, our depravity, keep us from a relationship with God. And repentance is just not feeling sorry and turning from our sins, but it's turning to Christ as the answer for our sin problem. And repentance is a lifelong thing. Then we move to follow Jesus' second verb, follow. We respond to his call. I mean, it's great that we said, each of us said the sinner's prayer. We raised our hand. We, we got walked the aisle to the altar. Asked Jesus in your life, whatever happened when you came to Christ originally, that's great. But that's a one-time thing. And then now you are to follow. And as you follow, as you grow in maturity and understanding of Christ in our lives, Christ will make you a fisher of men who will call you to fish. We spread his good news. We help spread his kingdom by casting into the waters around us. Repent, follow, and fish. Finally, the third section of our passage this morning is what Jesus has been doing, what Jesus strikes out, is doing in his public ministry, verses 23 through 25. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So once again, let's, uh, let's get our bearings on the map. Remember, this is Galilee, up here in northern Israel. It says that his fame spread throughout Syria. Syria's north. The Decapolis. East. Judea. Jerusalem. South. And then beyond the Jordan. It's Matthew's way of saying it's secrets out. Jesus' fame is spreading far and wide. People are coming from all over. What a change from the loneliness, the pain and hunger of the wilderness experience that we read about in the first half of the chapter to great crowds following him, listening to him preach, rejoicing over his healing power and making him famous. Hope you didn't miss, he teaches in the synagogues we don't generally think about that, but because we're coming to the Sermon on the Mount, we think of him preaching outside all the time. He did both. But this is really the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we hear that Jesus has the ability to heal people. 
pretend you've never read the Gospels before. Pretend you don't know anything about the life of Jesus. Actually, that may be true. I don't know. This is going to come as pretty jarring. There's nothing that's indicated that, that Jesus studied medicine or trained in the healing arts. Right? I mean, we're so used to. We've read the scriptures. We've heard the sermons. Yeah, of course, Jesus did miracles. He healed. Yeah. But where does this come from? This is out of the blue. All of a sudden, he's, he can heal anything. And Jesus healing, he healed people not solely for compassionate reasons, though he certainly had compassion on the people. And he didn't heal for fame's sake, although fame was coming, right? People flocked to him because of it. The primary purpose of miracles and healing in the scriptures are to validate, to prove that the one who is performing them was sent from God. That they were who they said they were. Jesus claims to be God, to be the Messiah, are proved true in people's eyes by his ability to do miracles. We're going to get to the passage where even John the Baptist wavers and sends his disciples and say, Hey, ask Jesus, are you the one? And what does Jesus say? He says, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. I think the implication is, how much more proof do you need? Ligon Duncan, again, quote from his sermon. Jesus healed the most deadly diseases known to his time, and he did it instantaneously and irrevocably by the power of God. And he did it in the presence of his enemies, who, more than anything else, would have liked to have proved him a farce. Epilepsy was considered in Jesus' day to be the greatest disease of the mind that one could have. No one knew how to treat it. Paralysis was considered to be the greatest disease of the body. No one could cure it. Demon possession, what greater example of the dominion of, a soul, of sin over a soul could one have? And Jesus comes and casts out demons. Mind, body, soul. Jesus heals them all. So as we see Jesus' ministry spreading, preaching, teaching, and healing... There's a lot of things I had to leave out of this sermon. One of them is is sort of talking about physical healing. That's a beautiful thing. We pray for it in the lives of our loved ones. We hope that God brings healing to them. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Blessed be his name. Either way. But this passage points us to something greater than physical healing. Jesus is preaching and teaching the good news of the kingdom. Ultimately, his ministry and his life will take him, as I said, to Jerusalem, where he will be betrayed, arrested, tried and convicted, ultimately killed. And when Jesus died, I'm sure there were some in Israel who thought, I didn't make it in time. I heard about all those thousands of people he healed. And I've got this really bad affliction 
And now he's dead. And I missed it. But we know from the testimony of Scripture that Jesus' death was not the end of his healing ministry, but the very thing that enables us to be healed spiritually. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In Christ, you are forgiven of all your sins. Past, present, future. The sin that ravaged you, that controlled you, that you had no answer for. You are freed from its guilt and its power. You'll still struggle with sin. We know that. Christians are far from perfect this side of heaven. But Jesus has paid the price for your sin, for my sin, and brought the healing that our souls need. Let's thank him for that. Lord God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life and how they work together and how they work and stand alone. Thank you that we have such a full portrait of Jesus who came and submitted himself to the humility of the flesh the trials and and temptations of this world to the ultimate humiliation of the cross. God, thank you that we see his ministry moving out, that he calls ordinary men, ordinary women to his service. And he calls us to follow, to repent of our sins, to follow him follow you because you are the way, the truth, and the life. And that as we follow, you will make us assured. We will see your joy in other people's lives. We will see your healing hand as people are brought into right relationship with you, forgiven of their sins, given eternal life so that their souls are healed. God, we see your healing in many ways. As you heal relationships, as you heal bodies. God, give us faith to cling to you, to recognize the kingdom in front of us, your great love for us, your mercy, your work in our lives. Thank you for the body and the bread, the blood that Jesus spilled on the cross that we will celebrate today in your supper to remind us of your great sacrifice on our behalf. That is the true forgiveness of our sins. 
We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we have our offering and offering song, uh, immediately after that, we'll move into our time of communion. So if your children are in the nursery and you want them to be with you during communion, this is a good time to get them. We'll have the ushers come down and Second Thessalonians two sixteen and seventeen. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.